This past year has been quite an unusual one for me and for my family. Um, I was diagnosed with cancer earlier in the year and uh, went through treatments and surgery. And and I'll tell you up front, if you don't know it, I lost my voice, so I'm still getting my voice back. So uh, pardon me. That's one reason why I agreed where the headset is uh, because I knew it might be difficult for you to understand me without it. <clears throat> but not only did that uh, affect me physically, it's affected me mentally and emotionally. And uh, we lost Debbie's dad this year. Our family has been through many other things that it's just been a quite difficult and challenging year. So I feel drained, and I feel um, empty, and I feel totally inadequate to stand behind this sacred desk and um, be used of God to speak for Him. But um, let's go to God and pray that He will give me His Word. Holy Father, we do pray that you would move now and that you would use me in spite of myself. And I pray, Father, that you would not only empower my mind and my voice and my words, that they might be yours, that I might not speak my thoughts, but that I would speak your truth. And I pray, Father, that you would empower the ears and the hearts and the minds of all who's here. That they might not receive my thoughts or my ideas, but yours. And that they might believe them as your word. And that they might rest upon them as your power to bring about your hope and your joy in their lives. Lord, help us to look into your word and to see what you say about Christmas. To see what it means and what it should mean to us even today. We ask these things in the powerful and precious name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, so this morning we're looking at Luke chapter 2. A very common, very familiar passage, the uh, birth announcement of Jesus Christ. And um, as Josh just read, we're looking at verses 7 through 14. And perhaps one problem we face already is that it is so familiar. It is so common to us. And we probably have our biggest obstacle in front of us, and that is to shed the traditions we have, to shed the thoughts that instantly come to our mind because of repeated Christmas drama after Christmas drama or Christmas scene after Christmas scene on a card or uh, in the public. And so oftentimes we're boxed in by the thoughts of traditions and ideas that may not be exactly biblical. So let's try to have a fresh and clear approach to uh, this passage and see exactly what it's saying. Um, Here we have the essence, in my opinion, of the Christmas message. Um, And that essence is explained in verse 10 as being good news. And that root word there is the word that we're familiar with. It's uh, evangel. Or evangelize comes from it. Um, it means literally just good news. That's the best interpretation. And why is it good news? That's the question. In other words, it's the same word for gospel. That's literally what gospel means is good news. And the key verse that we need to uh, latch on to is verse 11. Because there is the I think the key truth that's being announced today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. 
So it's uh, hard for me to break from who I am and the way I used to teach or uh, the way I used to present things. And um, if it weren't for the fact that my wife threatened me not to do this and that uh, Steve Jacobs has already laughed at my outline, I'd go through a five-point outline and talk about the text here and exposit each point about that we can see in this the position of salvation because salvation is the message of Christmas and or the good news that's being presented and then the proclamation of salvation and then the pervasiveness of salvation and then the person of salvation and then the purpose of salvation. Rick Warren has a book that's just come out called The Purpose of Christmas playing off his bestseller and I haven't read it, I haven't bought it, but I understand that um, it's based on three key principles from this text that is celebration, salvation, and consolation. Well, I submit to you that the purpose is even beyond that, that uh, if we look at verse 14, we can see that the ultimate purpose of this announcement is the same, which is the ultimate of everything that God does, and that's glory unto him, salvation unto us. In all things, you can see God's plan working that way. It's glory unto him, salvation unto, unto us. But what does this mean? I mean, you know, we can stop and talk a little bit about the setting and the text. You know, the setting is, of course, 2,000 years ago, um, exactly on time, you know, in the fullness of time, the Son of God came exactly on schedule and at exactly the right place. As Micah had prophesied 700 years prior to this, the little town of Bethlehem would be where he would be born. Um, and what about to whom he delivered this announcement? Isn't that amazing that if you were going to announce the birth of the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, Son of God in the flesh, wouldn't you call a press conference and go to Julius Caesar? You go to the most powerful man, the most powerful government on earth at that time. Um, or if you went to Jerusalem, you'd go to the um, Sanhedrin, go to the 70 elders ruling Israel, go to the Pharisees, Sadducees, the people in power to deliver the greatest message that's ever been made flesh. But who did he deliver it to first? Who was the first public declaration of Christ's birth? Now, it had already been declared unto uh, others like Joseph and Mary. But the first public declaration, who was it declared unto? Shepherds, lowly shepherds. Shepherds were the lowliest of men. It was the lowliest of professions. Um, they were considered not just low, but even unclean because in the Jewish culture, they couldn't obey the Jewish laws, especially those that the Jews had added unto the Scripture about cleanliness. They couldn't uh, refrain from work on the Sabbath because they had to tend their flocks. They were ceremonially unclean because they dealt with animals, and they, they stunk like their sheep. So to these lowly shepherds, comes the greatest announcement, the greatest birth announcement that's ever been. And what was this proclamation? Well, as I say, it's salvation unto us. It's good news of a great joy, which will be for all people. And so you see first that the message is what? Universal. It's broad in scope. It's for all people, for all nations, for all tongues, for all tribes. There is no specificity to the Jewish culture here, even though obviously he came unto his own first. He came to the Jews first. But it's an announcement for all people, for all times. So there's the broad universal scope, but then contrast that in the next verse, verse 11. Today in the city of David there has been born for you, me. Very personal. So it's very broad, very universal, but also very personal. It's me. It's you. It's, he has been born, as we talked about in Sunday school this morning, he has been born 
for us. He has been born to bear our sin, to bear our shame, that we might bear his righteousness, that we might bear his person and obtain restoration of fellowship with God. And um, this is so invasive. This is so uh, much of an effect upon the world and upon our own individual lives that it even split history. You know, every time you write a date, you declare Christmas. Every time you acknowledge the calendar, you acknowledge that Christ has come and split history. And that's just a small way in which is indicative of how Christ has made a total difference in all that came before him, all that comes after him. Christ is the central person, the central picture of all of man's history. And that is the person of salvation, Jesus Christ. And the wording here, it says a Savior. So that is what he will do. He will save as the angel Gabriel, who probably was the angel who made this announcement. He's not identified here. But it says an angel of the Lord who makes the announcement. Gabriel has been making the announcement about Christ. He did to Zechariah. He did to John. You know, so it's probably the announcing angel, Gabriel, who makes this announcement. And uh, he says that he is a Savior. He will be a Savior. And he told Joseph that you will name, you will call him what? Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. So he comes to save, but who is he? He is Christ, the Lord. And Christ, the root word for Christ, just simply means the anointed one, the one who's been prophesied, the one whose fulfillment is now come, the one who's been foretold and spoken of for ages. He is the anointed one, the Lord God Messiah. And then the term Lord which can be used to refer to a, a, a human person of power or great power, like um, the Caesar at this time, Augustus. He was even called Caesar the Lord. So it, it can mean simply a title of great power and respect. But to the Jewish culture, they would have understood this very clearly, that this is synonymous with God. Because throughout the Greek interpretation of the Old Testament, every time the Greek word for Lord is used, it's an interpretation of the word Yahweh. And so we know that they would have understood this means Christ the God has come. Christ the Lord. So who is the central person? It's God himself having put on flesh himself. And the purpose, which I'll say more about in a little bit, as I say, I think is summed up best in verse 14 because there's such a contrastive statement here where it says, Glory to God in the highest. And the highest is where? Heaven. You know, you have three heavens. You've got heaven, the atmosphere in the Bible, and heaven, the outer space in the Bible, the stars, and, the, and then you've got the heavens where God dwells. So glory to God in the heavens, in the highest. So that's the contrast of greatness in the highest places. Glory to God. That's the purpose, is that Christ has come to bring glory to his Father all the way through his life. He said what? He is to glorify the Father. That's his ultimate purpose. But then what is his purpose toward us? As I said, it's salvation. And on earth, at the lowest, so we've seen the highest, is glory to God at lowest on earth. Peace, peace among men with whom he is pleased. And I'll say a little bit more about that later too, but what I really want to speak to you about kind of gets back to what we've been through this year and what many of you in this church have been through this year and what you will go through next year. And that's problems, that's trials, that's suffering. When this message came, it's good news of a great joy. So 
Did all problems cease? Did everything become good and happy and joyful? Well, let's back up 4,000 years prior and think about Adam and Eve. The very first created um, man and woman, they were the first to receive the Christmas message. You know, in uh, Genesis 3.15, the what scholars call the Proto-Evangelion, the very first presentation of the gospel was given to them after their fall. And they believed that. They trusted in that. They received the good news and trusted in it in faith such that they were saved. They were saved the same way you and I are saved. They trusted in the one who would come that would crush the head of the serpent. They put their faith and trust in him. So they were saved. They received the good news. And so did all their problems cease? Was it nothing but great joy and good tidings for them from that moment on? Well, think about what happened just after that. Oh, by the way, just as a proof, let me make this notation. If you look in Genesis chapter 4, the very first verse, just in case you wonder why I'm so confident that they received this message and that they were saved, their response there when Eve gave birth to her first son, in effect could be translated, I have gotten him, the acquired one, even the Lord. So they were so confident in the word of God that he'd given to them that they thought when their first son came that he's the one. He's the one who would crush the head of the serpent. He was coming, but not yet. It wasn't him. So they heard the gospel message, and then what happened? They responded to it. They received it. They gave birth to two sons, and what happened? One son killed the other. What kind of problem would that be to deal with? How imagine. These are real people. These are not fairy tales. These are real people. Imagine if you had two sons and one son murdered the other. Would that be good news? Would that bring great joy? So what happened? Did the Christmas message fail them? Did the Christmas message fall short of what God intended it? What was wrong? Now jump forward 2,000 years from there to... uh, a man called Job, pardon me, I uh, have all kind of gadgets to try to help my throat. But uh, Job, so did Job receive the Christmas message? Did Job hear the gospel, the, the declaration of salvation? Yeah. And did he believe it? In the 19th chapter of his book, he said he knew that his Redeemer lives. And that in his flesh, he would behold him. Now, of course, he was referring to his second coming in the resurrection because he was talking about he'd see him in his flesh. But nonetheless, as we know, in the Old Testament, oftentimes people saw both comings of Christ together and they blurred the two. They didn't see the gap in between. But he saw the coming of Christ. He saw the coming of the babe that was born Christmas night. And he believed it. And he believed it so strongly that God used him as an example of faithfulness, right? God singled him out as, look at my servant, Job. How great is his faithfulness? How great does he trust in the message of the gospel? So it's good news. It's great joy. Is that what happened to Job? You know, he had ten children, seven sons and three daughters. He had great possessions. Thousands of livestock. He was a great man such that the scripture says he was the greatest man in the East. He had everything. And in four rapid fire succession disasters, what happened? He lost everything. He was left with only his wife and uh, some friends that, and he might have wished later he'd lost his wife and his friends, but, um, that's a joke, but, um, a weak one, but a joke. And he, he lost everything. And later on, he even lost his health. So Job suffered greatly. So what happened to the good news? What happened? Where was the good news? Did it not work? 
Why did it not bring tidings of great joy? Now jump forward another 2,000 years to the story we just read. And think of the shepherds in the field. These lowly shepherds carving out a living, tending to the flock of sheep. I mean, did they have great lives? This great announcement when all heaven breaks loose. We've heard the other term about what breaks loose sometimes, like maybe on Christmas morning if you've got a lot of little children. And all that breaks loose. But here in this announcement, all heaven breaks loose. This multitude of a heavenly host appears in the sky and declares the greatest news has ever been declared to these lowly shepherds. And I think that I can truthfully assert that they were devout shepherds. They weren't just shepherds. They were believing shepherds. They were men of faith. Now, why do I say that? Because first, I can't think God, I can't imagine God bringing this great announcement to unbelievers. I can't imagine that. I think God would have to speak to people who believed, who were looking forward to the consolation of Israel, who were looking for the blessed Messiah, who were looking for this hope. And then secondly, they indicate true faith if you look down in verse 15, because after the angels went away, they did what? They said, let us go straight to Bethlehem. The angels didn't command them to do that. That's the response of a true believer. They said, let's go. We've got to go see what God said. Uh, and then <clears throat> if you look too, they came in a hurry, verse 16, and found their way to the baby in a manger. So I think that they were true believers. So they received, they had received the message even prior to the message was made this dramatic to them. So they're believers. They received the good news. But was it good news? Was it great joy? I mean, do you think after this that the shepherds uh, moved out of the fields of Bethlehem and moved into great mansions in Jerusalem? And they, instead of having to walk everywhere, they got a four-horsepower carriage and, uh, you know, got to drive around. And I mean, did they get their Mercedes and Cadillac? And um, did they have perfect health and no problems after this? We don't know. But I think they continued to live lives that were full of suffering and pain and problems. And then they died. Same as what will happen for all of us. And even, I think, a better illustration is one that's uh, fictional. But John Piper wrote a little book entitled The Innkeeper, where he uh, gives names to the keeper of the inn at this time and his wife uh, he names him Jacob and his wife Rachel and they have two sons two little sons one named Joseph and one named Ben and Joseph is born <clears throat> prior to uh, Mary and Joseph coming that night and then Ben is born right before like within two weeks of Christ's birth and later on Christ comes back to Bethlehem to visit Jacob. And he visits Jacob and finds him alone with an old dog and with one arm. And Jacob begins to relate the story about that fateful night when this announcement was proclaimed and how that they developed a reputation from that day forward because his wife insisted that they show compassion to this young teenage couple who came and Mary was with child and so they made them stay, even though they didn't have room in the inn, they had room in an animal stall. So they put them up, and then after that, uh, you know, maybe a year after that, within two years after that, the death squads of Herod came. You remember the edict that Herod gave out? He, he issued a decree to go kill all the male children under two years of age, especially in Bethlehem. So, you know, it's fiction, but it's certainly plausible that if they still lived in Bethlehem, the death squads come back to Bethlehem, and the first one that Jacob sees die is his older son, Joseph, as they spear him in the street. And then his wife, uh, Rachel, sweeps up little Ben 
and struggles with the soldiers to uh, keep them from killing him. But she dies. They kill her and little Ben, and he loses his arm in the sword fight. So he's relating that about how that fateful night long ago led to him losing both his sons and his wife and his arm. So was it good news? Was it great joy? What did it mean for the innkeeper? But even more important, I want us to jump forward one more 2,000-year gap to today. I want us to think about what does it mean for me and you? What does it mean for everyone in the world today? Think about the current conditions in the world. I mean, we're so spoiled. And, you know, one reason why I've had difficulties this year is because I've lived such a perfect life. I have had no problems until this year. I've never experienced any problem, really. And I live in a land where most people have the same experience. And even when we have problems, they aren't like what most others experience. So think about in the rest of the world where there are people suffering for the cause of Christ, for them to believe the gospel, for them to receive the Christmas announcement means Suffering, pain, separation from their family, imprisonment, loss of their job, even death. So, would you receive the message as good news? Would you receive the message as great joy, knowing that it cost you everything? Knowing that it cost you your life? And what about you? What about me? Um, here at Christmas time, you know, oftentimes Christmas is one of the most depressing and emotional times for people to go through. It's, it's so full of loneliness. It's so full of pain. It's so full of hardship. Like, what if you come into Christmas and you've just lost over half your savings in the market? What if you come into Christmas And your employer just told you that they're having to cut back production and you're going to lose a fourth of your income. What if you just lost your job and you're trying to find a job in these desperate times? What if um, you just lost a loved one and you're having to face the first Christmas? Without that person. You know, what if... You know, you've been diagnosed with cancer or a long-term illness, and you're facing treatment or suffering or even death. Um, I know of a man in our community that was just diagnosed with stage 4 pancreatic cancer, and I gave him three months right before Christmas. You know, I can go on and on, but do you see my point? Y'all are having problems. I'm having problems. But have we received the message of Christmas? Is it good news or not? And how is it good news? So, the good news of a great joy, does it do away with our problems? No. But it brings a solution. It brings a solution to every problem. But it may not. It may not be in this life. And that really gets us to what is the real gospel, as Dave alluded to earlier, and as Carlton preached on last Sunday. That's what we're really talking about. What is the real gospel? We're inundated in America with so many false gospels. You know, health, wealth, and prosperity. And and I know we're sitting here as Grace Fellowship, and we say, no, we're too smart to believe that. We have a little bit... or let me say me, I'm egotistical enough to think I'm too smart to believe the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. I know that's not true. I know that won't preach in Ethiopia. It can't be a universal universal doctrine. But do I oftentimes think, well, if I live for God, if I'm faithful to Him and to His church and His people, 
And if I obey his word and as best I can, even though I'm a great sinner, as best I can, I try to be faithful and true to his principles and the way I conduct my business and the way I live my life and the way um, you raise your family. Don't you get to thinking you have a little bit of a right to not have so much pain? Don't you get to thinking, well, I don't smoke, I don't drink, I don't go with girls who do. And so why did I get cancer? You know, I get to thinking, I didn't deserve cancer. You know, I ate the right foods, I exercised. Um, You see what I'm saying? We have a little bit of a wrong view, don't we? I mean, I'm testifying I have the wrong view. And I'm just saying as the shoe fits, wear it. But we may reject what's obviously not the real gospel, but I'm trying to get us to think what is the essence of the pure gospel. There is no gain for us. There is no gain for us in this life, in this life circumstance. And you say, well, now, wait a minute. You go too far. You're taking this too far. Christ said, I came that you might have life and have it what? More abundantly. So you say, well, what about that, Aaron? You know, what does that mean? Well, it's the quality of life. Abundant life is like eternal life. When Christ says we have eternal life, that's something we have now. It's not something we wait to eternity to have. We have it now. And we have the blessings of that now. And it is abundant life. But it's not problem-free life. We have the victory. We're seated with Christ in the heavenlies. But we still live here. We still have to live this stuff. We still have to walk the path. And if, as we read this morning in Hebrews 2, if he was perfected in sufferings, how much more so might we be? If our master was persecuted, how much more so might we be? And we're sinners. We deserve it. He didn't deserve it. He's the only one who could say, I don't deserve this. I deserve everything I get. And anything I, anything less than eternal hell is a gift. So, what kind of salvation, when it says that Christ has come, a Savior, a Savior has come, what kind of salvation do we need? Do we need salvation from, like, uh, just uh, self-fulfillment? You know, that's one gospel being preached today is that Christ has come so you can feel good about yourself. You can have a positive attitude. And Christ has come to break you free from your habits. Christ has come to solve your marriage problems. Christ has come to solve your financial problems. Christ has come for whatever you want to insert. I heard one man on TV say, just as salvation is presented as a work that's complete, that's done, prosperity is that way too. You know, salvation works completely. So God's prosperity in the Bible works completely. Well, the problem is salvation is not complete. It's not complete, right? We we face a situation that we need to think about. If you say, well, you're depressing me. This is... This is not good news. What you're saying is too negative. It's too dark. It's too depressing. What would make someone accept that gospel? You know, what did Jesus say about the gospel? He said, if any man follow me, he's got to what? Deny himself. Deny himself. And that word deny means to refuse to associate with. So if we're going to refuse to associate with ourselves, deny our life, and take up our cross and follow him. And by the way, in the the culture that was given, what do you think they thought it meant when he said, take up your cross? I mean, 
It wasn't something you wear around your neck like we do today. It wasn't something we stick on the back of our car. It meant die. It meant death. They, they clearly understood what the cross meant. We've made it pretty. And, you know, we decorate our churches with them. And they're there to remind us of the focal point of our gospel. But it's not a pretty thing. It was death. And that's what Christ meant. The real gospel, when we come to Christ, is the denial of ourselves. So, back to the question, what would make us receive this gospel? Well, that's the wrong question, isn't it? It's not a what, but a who. Who would make us receive this gospel? Except the Spirit of God convict our hearts and minds and soften us to the truth of God and draw us to himself, we, like Christ's own family and friends in Nazareth, you know, he preaches a message in uh, Luke chapter 4 to his own family and friends back in his hometown. And when he gets through preaching this message, what do they want to do? Take him cliff, throw him off cliff, and kill him. What did he say to them that infuriated him? He said, you're poor, you're blind, you're wretched, you're prisoners, and you're wicked. And except you repent, you, there's no hope for you. Except you receive the gospel, there's no hope for you. And that infuriated them. Because they thought, like we do, that they deserve something. That they thought being good Jews bought them something. So, I want to be sure that we don't miss the meaning of Christmas. God has spoken. God spoke in Genesis in creative power. And he said, let there be, and there was. That's the way his word works. God spoke ever since then, after the fall, in recreative or redemptive power. He said he would save his people. He said he would send a Messiah. He said there would be born unto us a Savior. A child would be given. And he said that he would put on flesh, and he did. But yet, the God who spoke, the God who was coming, that God is still speaking. That God is still coming. That God will speak yet again in New creation power. He spoke in creative power. He's spoken for thousands of years in recreative power. He is yet to speak in new creation power. So what am I talking about? I'm talking about the hope of this message. The hope of this announcement. When God says through his angel that he brings us good news of a great joy. It is salvation unto us, but that salvation is yet to be complete. You know, salvation consists of justification, sanctification, glorification. And not to get technical, but, you know, justification, our spirits have been saved perfectly, completely. Sanctification, our souls are being saved progressively through this life. Not yet. They're not finished. God's not finished. And our bodies, as we all know, are deteriorating. They're not being saved at all. And they are yet to be saved in glorification. So that salvation that God brought, it wasn't just the sinner's prayer. You know, it wasn't just get your name on a card and get hell insurance. It was eternal life, abundant life, forever. And it is yet to be complete. So the good news is our great hope. It's our great hope. And I apologize, but we do suffer in this life. We have great pain. And I don't know what great pain is. I don't know what great suffering is. But I've been through enough to know that I can't imagine what others go through. 
And we will have more. We are yet to die. All of us in here will die except Christ come again first. And the point is that what is our hope? That a Savior has come. Our salvation is complete. To tell us that. It is finished. Christ has done it. We are yet seated in the heavenlies. And he has purchased our redemption. And so even in the problems, we have the solution. Even in the suffering, we have the remedy. Christ is the ultimate glory revelation of the Father. Think about this. God revealed his glory walking in the garden with Adam and Eve. You know, they they were sinless so they could withstand the incinerating blaze of the glory of God. They weren't consumed. You know, like God warned Moses, no, you can't see my glory and live because it will incinerate you. You'll vaporize in the heat of the glory of the radiance of God. But he communed with Adam and Eve in the garden. And yet, the glory departed when they fell. But then later, in Exodus 40, when they completed the tabernacle, the glory of God, the Shekinah glory of God, descended and filled that tabernacle and created a place of worship, signifying this is where you worship me. But And you remember how that glory would depart during the day as a cloud to lead them and during the night as a pillar of fire to lead them and protect them. And then it left. And then later in the temple, Solomon's temple, it was built. And what happened again? The glory of God came and filled the Holy of Holies. But then in Ezekiel, chapters 8 through 10, we read what? Ichabod, the glory is departed. It's gone again. So we see God coming, speaking, revealing His glory in special ways. But then, how did it blaze its brightest? Christmas night. A Savior who is Christ the Lord, a baby wrapped in claws, lying in a manger, such that this multitude, this heavenly army, by the way, the word here is a military term, a heavenly host. And, you know, if we look at Revelation, there's no, the highest number in the Greeks used, murion, meaning millions upon millions of angels. We don't know how many. Um, saying glory to God in the highest. So God's glory shone brightest when the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And he even let his disciples have a peak of that greater glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. But he departed, right? So where is God's glory now? Christ in you. What's the rest of the verse say? The hope of glory. Christ in you. The hope of glory. Colossians 1.27 We have that hope of glory within us. And one day, this is what we hope for. This is what we pin our faith on. Is that one day, like Abraham, we look toward a city that will be seen. We look toward a reality that we will experience. Like Job, we will see our Redeemer. Like Isaiah says, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. Why? Because God said so. Because the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. What God says is going to happen. Just as true as it was that God came in Genesis, that God came in Exodus, that God came in Kings, and that God came in the Gospels, is that God is coming. God is coming. And that we will see Him either... This side of death, if he comes soon, or the other side of death in our resurrection. He's coming. And that glory, when that glory comes, is some more glory. Like Jesus said in Matthew 24, Then the sign of Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. 
That glory is what we hope for. That glory is what we look for. That Christ is what we put our faith and trust in in the Christmas message. Um, if I had time, I'd just run through some of the majesties of who Christ is. But but y'all know that. Carlton's preached that so well. There's no point in me doing that. But I want you to flip to First uh, Peter chapter 1 as, as I wrap up. Maybe that will motivate you if I say I'm wrapping up. First um, Peter chapter 1. By the way, this glory that's coming, this future hope, Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that eye has not seen, ear has not heard. It's hadn't even entered into our imagination that God's prepared. But look in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. That's what the good news is. We have a living hope in us. Christ in us. The hope of glory. The Spirit of God. The Spirit of Christ in us. Hope of glory. Through the resurrection of Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable. See, it's an inheritance. It's something we get at death. Undefiled and will not fade away. Reserved in heaven for you. We've got reservations for this great hope who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Well, I thought we were saved now. We are, but it's not complete. The salvation ready to be revealed in the last time is the completion of the salvation. And in this, you greatly rejoice. There's that great joy. We, we have great joy in the salvation to come. And look down in verse 8. Talking about the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. So Jesus said, behold, I'm coming quickly. And we say, what? Even so, come. We suffer, but we don't incur judgment. We endure pain. But we don't have guilt. We endure loss. But we receive forgiveness. We've lost our sin consequences. And we gain righteousness. The very righteousness of Christ imputed to us. That's the indescribable gift of Christmas. And what is that gift? It's not just the gospel message. As Piper says, what? The gospel is God himself. That's the message of Christmas, is that God has given us himself. Um, I don't know if this helps you to... Um, receive this in the right way, but as we close, I just want you to think about this message as a birth announcement of a king. Um, God speaks through his angels and he declares an announcement of the birth of his son, and he says, here's the king of kings, the Lord of lords, he's coming, he's come. And he is a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this is good news of a great joy for all people. And it is for you, unto you. So he's declaring peace. And that peace is the peace of God and the peace with God. And that peace is fulfilled when? In the salvation to come. But you can have it now. You can enjoy the benefits of it now. And the main thing is, if we don't receive the terms of the peace treaty now, then what? There is no hope.
There is no hope. There is one way. You know, a king does not negotiate. And certainly the king of glory does not make compromises. He has declared what is the one way. And so the choice is, do we receive that as did Eve, as did Adam, as did Job, as did the shepherds? Or do we reject it? So do we have that living hope or not? Well, that's the gospel call, is to receive the message while you can. Because if we don't, there is no hope. If we do, there is a living hope, a great joy that we can look forward to throughout the problems of this life, through the problems of this life, over the problems of this life. Have you ever been in an airplane and uh, right after, like in bad weather, of course, uh, I don't like to fly when it's bad weather, but have you ever taken off in an airplane and gone through clouds of a storm and it's dark and depressing all down below and you pierce the clouds and you get up above the clouds and the sun comes out and it's beautiful and you see the sun shining down on the clouds. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that a beautiful thing? And you get a different perspective. Well, see, that's what this living hope does for us. If wisdom is seeing things as God sees them and conversion gives us that view, then how much more so is it that we can see things as God sees them by having the living hope dwelling within us so that we can get above the clouds and look down on the problems of life rather than them looking down on us. We suffer the same as unbelievers. We die the same as unbelievers. We have all the problems that unbelievers have. Christ never promised anything relative to this life. But we have his perspective. And we, like flying above the clouds, can look down and see things as God sees them. So my appeal to you, if you have not made peace with this king, is to do so. And if you have, it's to receive the fullness of that peace, that you might live that life and live it more abundantly and see things from God's perspective. Let's close in prayer.